The future sometimes seems inseparable from technology. From our cell phones to our computers, to virtual reality, to a world wide web of information. Take this further, and perhaps we can envision a future where technology is merged with us, humanity itself. Maybe this is in the form of a mechanized limb, but some people want to take it even further. Technology that can be implanted right within the human body, radical life extension through technology, using tech to make us faster, stronger, smarter. Perhaps even going to the extreme of merging man and machine into one, uploading our minds to a computer. This is the future imagined by transhumanists. They envision technology becoming so much a part of our life that we literally become one with it. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. On this podcast, we talk about the intersection of science and technology and society from ethics, philosophy, history, the future, culture, art, and what it means to be human. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find out more about this podcast at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, and find episodes on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. This is the first episode of season six. Can you believe it? I've already recorded a lot of episodes for this season, and I have some great content in store for you. But first, a bit of a departure. For the past several seasons, I've been bringing you an episode every other week. Now, I'm a one-person team to put this podcast together, from finding guests, interviewing, editing, and post-production. And in today's world, from COVID to family and work commitments, I just can't keep up that pace. So, at least for a while, I will be changing the release schedule to once a month. I know this may be a little bit disappointing for you, but part of this decision was realizing what I, as a one-person team, could realistically do. So at least for a little while, I'll be releasing a new episode every first Tuesday of the month. For those of you who are supporting me through Patreon, I hope to provide you with even more content, from behind-the-scenes discussions with some of our guests, bonus episodes, jokes, artwork, and news. And if you're not a patron and you want to become one, you can check out patreon.com sparkdialogue. I want to thank all of my patrons for supporting this podcast. As you know, podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to produce. So I do appreciate every little bit of help that go towards production costs. Hi, my name is Seth Viegas. I'm currently a fourth year PhD student at Boston University. I'm currently in their School of Theology in the Science and Religion program. And my main area of interest is transhumanists and specifically dialogue between transhumanists and religious communities. You may or may not have heard of the transhumanist movement. One thing to note, it spans a huge range of what people want to do, what they want to achieve, and how far they're willing to go. So transhumanism is a technological movement, first and foremost, and it's people who are interested in using technology to radically change some part of the human condition. For instance, there's a show on Amazon that recently came on called Upload, right, in which we imagine that people, after they die, can be uploaded into a computer. There are transhumanists who actively desire something like that, a digital afterlife in a kind of virtual world. And so that's one of the things that they talk about. Within that, though, I would say there's generally interest in radical life extension. That's the term for it. And even more extreme from that, it would be something like indefinite life extension. So there are these terms that get thrown around a little bit just because they kind of strike our emotions a bit harder, like immortality and whatnot. But that's a really big idea within the transhumanist community. 
Another thing that transhumanists also like to talk about is super intelligent AI. And a super intelligent AI is something that's, it's qualitatively different, which means it's, it's something that's so smart, we wouldn't know what to do with it, basically. So it could have its own priorities, perhaps, but it's something that transhumanists are both, say, perhaps maybe really interested in, interested in achieving it, but also really concerned about. And so there's kind of different sectors of transhumanists who are interested in different technologies. But the thing that they all share in common is that they're using technology to change some part of the human condition. So either what we are or how we live, and basically everything would be different if transhumanists were able to kind of go through with all of their projects. Now, it's important to understand that transhumanism spans a huge gamut of what people want to do. Some just want to provide a way for people who are deaf or who have lost a limb, for example, to gain back some of that ability they once had. Others want to see how far they can push their own bodies. For many people, transhumanism is about control. It's about controlling who we are, what we can do, and who we can become as humanity. We don't really get to choose who it is that we are. And so this also has, you know, some crossovers with other trans movements, right? Not just transhumanism, but also, say, transgenderism. So, for instance, if there's something about our body that we don't like, or perhaps the way our body is isn't really how we see ourselves, one of the appeals of living in a virtual space is the kind of malleability that you could have. So that just means that if I don't like the way that my hair looks, you know, I can change it. If I don't like how many, you know, how tall I am, how short I am, I can kind of alter these things and experiment with these things. And so that kind of givenness of who it is that we are and kind of even where we are in society and the kind of experiences we have, it would seem that you'd have a lot more control over those if you lived in in a kind of virtual space. And so that's one area of thought. And those people are usually called either digital escapists if you're trying to you know criticize them or digital utopians, right? And kind of imagining this sort of space where you can you know be on your own and live in a kind of a heaven with pleasant experiences that you have complete control over. But there are other people who are interested in, say, body modification of some kind. So I know a few years back, there was a transhumanism conference where people had people installed like magnets in themselves. And so people kind of experimenting on their bodies. But I think both those ideas have that kind of similar core, though, of my body is some way and I can actively change it to operate differently, either by using a direct machine interface with my body. So for instance, the brain wire interface is something that Elon Musk is currently working on. And it's something that philosophers have written about, like say Slava Zizek actually wrote a whole book about this recently. And so this kind of crossover between the body and the machine, or even just becoming a machine entirely, I think there's, they're not entirely the same approach to thing, but I think they have a similar core. And that's you know why they're transhumanists. It's why they can be called a common movement. A lot of people have some ethical qualms about transhumanism, and this is even beyond whether or not we should take control over our own bodies. Let's envision a future where body modification through technology is the norm, or even a future where doctors can identify which babies will be born with Down syndrome and can provide a technological modification to help them live more normal lives. What if you're a family who does not want to edit your baby through technology like this? Would she fall behind? Would she still have social services available to her? Would it come down to cost where some families could afford the procedure and some couldn't? What's interesting is about what you first said about people being left behind by enhancement 
does sort of presume or perhaps even concede the superiority of the people who get enhanced, which I, I, I do I do find that interesting. And the way that these things are usually talked about in the ethics conversation is enhancement versus therapy. So for instance, if we're going to bring someone to say like, uh, you know, my arm gets chopped off, right? And I'm given a prosthetic arm that's therapeutic in some sense, right? It's restoring a function that I had before. But that's really controversial. Even it, So therapy is even controversial today because it has all these inbuilt ideas of normalcy. So like, who is it that needs to be repaired to some other state? And that can get really, really tricky. I think especially today, we're a lot more conscious of those sorts of things. But it is true, though, that we have these expectations of, you know, this is what a girl should look like. This is what a boy should look like. I, I do bring up that, like the kind of transgender conversation, because that's kind of where it's most visible right now, kind of our ideas of normalcy. But it is interesting to think about, like, would it be immoral to actually allow someone with, like, I don't know, some sort of neurological disability to come, you know, to be born without repairing that if you had it in your power to do so. And this can be really tricky because it presumes that first you can identify it. And second, that you can fix it without making it worse. So for instance, actually, when I was born, my mom was warned that I might potentially have Down syndrome, which which I don't. And so there's a risk, you know, in part because of her age. Uh, my siblings are actually much older than me. I was born very kind of late into my parents' lives. And so, you know, I would say, oh, well, if, if she chose not to carry me to term or whatever because of a particular defect, well, you know, I wouldn't be here. And, you know, I, I like being here. So, you know, I wouldn't like that. But Again, that presumes, though, that you got it right. And that's not something you can actually know without, you know, the person sort of coming to term, right, and like living out their life and whatnot. And so you have to have this weird confidence in your own knowledge, first of all, even on the even on the therapy angle, right, even without enhancement. And enhancement would be kind of going beyond things. One of the things that's most talked about is if you could, say, make your children smarter, that because we already sort of see this... Uh, race to the top, so to speak, with getting into really prestigious colleges and whatnot. And I've actually worked as a tutor for a really long time. So I kind of seen this where you'll have really well-off families, you know, putting their kids through a really good school, but not only a really good school, but hiring someone to come teach their kids after school for a few hours, right? And if you can imagine someone who doesn't have access to those resources, they just be kind of left behind. So in a way, that issue is sort of live at other parts of our society already. So maybe it's maybe it's not a different problem. Maybe it's the same problem. But what's interesting, though, is it's not clear that you can make someone more intelligent right now without causing other kinds of problems to them, right? Like uh, maybe making you smarter also makes you kind of crazy, which I think I'm kind of inclined to believe might be true in some sense, uh, at least just the way our, our kind of our brains work right now. That's kind of beside the point. But anyway, if you, you if you could figure out how to do that, I think there would be a real risk of people kind of going on and on with enhancements and with people being left behind, not having equal access. Different transhumanists have different political philosophies, and so they'll think about that I- issue differently. So, for instance, James Hughes is a Democratic transhumanist who'd be interested in sort of how do you make that technology as widely available as possible. But that's very different from sort of libertarian transhumanists like Max Moore, who wouldn't want that kind of interference to happen and who actively kind of collaborate with wealthy people, you know, kind of for those people to do whatever they want, basically. And 
I, I do think that that's definitely a big issue. The peculiar thing about technologies is, is that the development of, of technology and the use of those prototypes is always going to be driven by wealth inequality, right? In a way, you can only make certain technologies because you have we have access to resources from all over the world here in the United States. And that's just kind of the way that it is. And I'm not sure what would really change that, so to speak, um, because, you know, if you were to put that power in, in in someone else's hands, like say in the government, well, it would seem like they'd also just be distributing it. So I'm not really sure. Uh, I do think, though, that for the majority of transhumanists, they have this thing called morphological freedom, which is I have the freedom to change myself. And so I think that they would be perfectly content with people who chose not to enhance themselves. And that'd actually be really important. But someone like James Hughes also does imagine a kind of tiered society in which people will be based on kind of maybe their level of intelligence or, you know, other things. So you could have like super intelligent AIs at the top, whatnot, maybe like really, really smart humans that have been enhanced in the next tier and then like unmodified people in the next tier. That They would do that in part because of, you know, different kinds of considerations of all kinds. But uh, there are, those things probably would under, undermine our democratic ideals in a kind of a fundamental way, just because that, it would be a lot more in our face even than it is now because, you know, people are kind of at least within a range of each other right now. You know, even if you know, people are smarter, people are more athletic and whatnot, but we're not so different from each other. But if we think about those enhancements kind of running wild, then it's not, there's no way to know how much smarter someone could be and how different that would make them think of themselves. And I think that that subjective part of it is, maybe one of the biggest problems because if I was thinking about a super intelligent person who was much, much smarter than me, like, I don't know, not even like three standard deviations, which is like genius level, but 10 or something like that, you know, something that's like so remote that I can't even fathom it. Then I don't know. Uh, Like I'm not, society would look really different at that point. Uh, Again, I'm not sure how feasible that is really at the moment, but it is something to be concerned about. But the kinds of cultural problems we face there aren't all that different from ones we face in other sectors. And I do think that that's one of the interesting things about transhumanism is people are talking about those things and the ways in which society could be different. And then I actually really like that part about the transhumanist conversation because they're actively imagining the way in which we could redo things. You know, some of, you know, some of those I agree with, some of them I don't, but it does seem at the moment, like with technology as it is, we do need to kind of radically rethink things because, you know, say having a few tech companies kind of in charge of our privacy and our data, this kind of asymmetry of, of information that lends itself to an asymmetry in power is just, that, that's already a problem in the present. And so the kinds of future problems are just extensions of that. So maybe if we can figure out how to do things in the present, the things in the future will become more clear. Perhaps the most extreme form of transhumanism is giving up the corporal form of your body to achieve true immortality by roaming free as information on the internet. Of course, this assumes the internet would exist forever, or at least some form of data storage. This is the goal of a camp of transhumanists who hope to live forever as information through uploading their brains to a computer. So for people who are interested in uploading themselves, I would say the most prominent figure 
among these people is probably Ray Kurzweil. He's a guy who's currently at Google. He, he does some top secret work that no one really knows about, but it, from his job description, it, it sounds like he's just allowed to just sort of run wild with whatever kinds of ideas he has. So information is this really interesting thing in that when you use information, it's not consumed, right? So, so for instance, I can know something and I can tell you something, and the fact that we both know it doesn't use up the information in the same way that, say, gas in a car is used up when you, you know, when you drive it. And so if that's the case, then it would seem that it would be something more like a hard drive copy, right? It wouldn't be that I, right, would, you know, cease to be here and I would be somewhere else. So for instance, in the movie Tron, that's something that happens, right? It's a, you know, he's kind of scanned, you know, bit by bit by the computer. But the way that I think it would actually work, I mean, that's a funny thing to say because I'm not sure that it would actually work. But you would take, say, a brain emulation or a full body emulation. And an emulation just means that, say, maybe it's copying the particular particles and where they are at a particular moment or something like that. That's one of the ways in which you could do this at a particular moment. And then you let that run in a virtual space. I actually think that the way that they would try to do this is they would map all of your information interacting with the virtual world. And so this is something I'll be writing about in my dissertation. So if I wanted to copy myself, I think that the, one of the easiest ways to do that is to go into an environment with greater capacities for da- data collection, which is why I think you know VR would be something like that, where you can just measure how, how I talk, how I breathe, right, my heart rate at particular moments, right, and try to mimic those with greater and greater fidelity over time, and that that would be it. But again, that wouldn't that wouldn't be the same as truly uploading ourselves as the way it's, we usually think about it. It'd be more like, oh, I've copied myself into a computer and now there's one running around, but I would still be here. And from the transhumanists I've talked to in here in the Boston area, most of them know that and accept that. And one person I, I talked to actually said, well, I would want to be able to speak to my copy to be convinced that it was me, right, in some sense. And so... It's not that, you know, my body disappears and I'm suddenly somewhere else. It's more like, you know, I am here, but I've been copied to such a a great degree that I can convince myself that that's me, right? And they assume that this would be a less vulnerable state, in part because you could copy yourself further. That's one of the interesting things with being uploaded, right? Is, you know, there could be one of me, there could be hundreds of me, you know, you could back yourself up or whatnot, but also because of the way machine intelligence works, say that electrical transistors are just qualitatively faster than, you know, the kind of chemical like neuros, you know, my synapses and whatnot. Because of that, you could also run that simulation of yourself much, much faster. So in transhumanist eschatology, and, you know, we can argue about whether that's actually a thing or not. If you're living in a virtual reality environment, because of how much faster that is, you might have a lot more subjective time, right? Than you would if you were immortal in the real world, which is a really interesting thing to think about because even the the universe itself is finite in some sense. It'll come to a definitive end. But VR and total immersion might even offer this possibility of kind of a subjective infinity in which you, you just keep running on these digital cycles as fast as possible you know, until things, you know, finally kind of unravel, I suppose, in the, in the physical cosmos.
the idea of transhumanism is often closely related to artificial intelligence. And not just an AI program that will tell you if your credit is approved or not. No, I'm talking about really powerful AI. The AI that can solve problems that humans would never be able to, approaching the level of superhuman intelligence. And why is this? Some of the questions that transhumanists want to answer are really hard. How can we live forever, or at least for a really long time? Can we upload our brains or our entire selves to a computer? We might not be able to solve these problems, but hand them over to a superintelligent AI, and perhaps they could figure it out. This is actually a very interesting question. It's one I've thought a lot about. So in a lot of ways, we don't know how it is that we'd upload a person into a computer. But if I don't know how to figure something out, maybe I could ask someone who could figure it out. And someone who might be able to figure out is a super intelligent AI. So basically, even if I can't do it, maybe some other agent could do it. And so this is actually really important for transhumanist thinking, is that intelligence is paramount. It's the it's the most important thing out there. And you can basically use intelligence to solve anything. And so if you had more of it, you could probably solve any problem. And so in transhumanist literature, there's a lot of things that are supposed to come about after the singularity. In other words, if there's a technology that we don't know how it would work, even in theory, well, it'll just come after the singularity because this after the singularity happens, you know, we'll have much greater understanding of, say, how our brains work, will know how to, say, manage the kind of information that they think makes up ourselves and move that into a computer or to you know, make a body interface that works in a different way than they currently do. And so the singularity is a, a sort of pivotal, pivotal event in causing lots of these things that they think will happen to happen. And for a philosopher like Nick Bostrom out of Oxford, you know, his main worry is, well, will the singularity bring about good things? say, an AI who's interested in helping us with these you know, key problems that we don't know about. He even, even mentions in his book, Superintelligences, that if, there, if we wouldn't know what rules to give to a superintelligent AI, you could ask the superintelligent AI what rules we should have given to it, right, if we knew better, right? You know, there's these kind of interesting thought experiments he does. But he's also really worried that that same AI might have, I don't know, Skynet syndrome, perhaps, right? And be interested in, you know, creating a dystopia for human beings or, or using us as slaves or, or something. And the really scary thing about that is because they make intelligence so important, all of that could happen without us knowing. So maybe we just start to live in the matrix or something like that. Maybe that's already happened. That's another thing that Bostrom kind of talks about. But the fact that intelligence makes it so that you can't really resist or that you can't sort of subvert it because everything you do can be taken into account. That's, that's kind of the scary side of things that they also think about. People have dreamed of immortality for ages, actually achieving it by giving up the ability to feel the sun on your face or to taste ice cream, or even to hug your child seems like a pretty steep price to pay. So what's the motivation? In a word, death. Every religion tries to address death. Perhaps waiting for us is heaven. Perhaps nirvana. Perhaps reincarnation. Just like these philosophies, transhumanists seek to understand death. And perhaps even conquer it. I think this is actually an interesting point to talk to potential non-transhumanists about what they think about death. 
So for instance, Muhammad Ahmed, who designed a chatbot basically for his children to be able to interact with their grandfather, which is really interesting. And there's also this other person, uh, actually, there's an article about him, and another person's mentioned, a, I think her name's a Eugenia Koida. I apologize if I got your last name wrong. But basically, she also wrote a chatbot. She programmed a chatbot for her, for, for her friend who died. And what's interesting about them is, in both cases, there's, a kind, there's this mourning process that's happening, and the process of recreation is a way of potentially handling that grief, but of, but of also maybe helping that person to live on in some sense in a more tangible form than just as a memory. But when I've spoken to transhumanists, they're not usually talking about uploading their loved ones. They're talking about uploading themselves. And so there's very different motivations that can be involved in, in digitally reproducing someone. And, and what I find about that that's really interesting is from a biological point of view, you know, I've met transhumanists who have kids, and so it's interesting that they want to reproduce themselves when they've already kind of reproduced themselves, you know, biologically, but that they want a copy of themselves specifically, right? Not of something that's, you know, a genetic recombination of them and someone else, but of myself. And I think that that's very different than, say, you know, creating a digital reproduction of a loved one right so that we can continue to interact with them the motivations there are kind of different and so in the in the former case of a create, recreating a loved one that seems to be more about grief more about togetherness whereas in the latter case it seems more about existential anxiety right which is just this way that we feel kind of about being in the world and the way in which death can be really troubling you know I don't know. I've definitely been kept up at night sometimes thinking about what it would be like not to exist. You know, maybe that's the sort of weird thing that happens to grad students. But it's it, it's really strange to think about what that would be like. And, you know, that can drive some people crazy. And the, the fact that I might live on or not live on kind of into the future is is highly motivating for some people. But I do think I would make a distinction between thinking about the death of others versus my own death. And for a lot of transhumanists, it's about my own death. It's about the death of me specifically, myself, not not even about the lives of others. And so a lot of them are motivated to stay healthy in the present and to, you know, take on radical diets, you know, really strict practices so that they can get to that point in which the singularity would happen, which kind of funds their ability to potentially be in that VR world for all eternity. And that's kind of the the payoff, I suppose. It's here that Seth finds an interesting parallel between this camp of transhumanists and religions, that we humans are more than just a sack of cells and water. There's something more to us. Call it information or call it the soul. This idea that there's something about me that's intangible that even after I my physical body dies, will continue to live on. And I do think that that's how transhumanists think about information. And so there are transhumanists who even conceive of, like, would it be possible to recover all, all information of everyone at some point and to reconstruct everyone from that? Uh, actually, in Russia... Uh, Anya Bernstein has a lot of interesting research about both the uh, Christian transhumanists, right, or the variety of them that exists there, and about these ideas of kind of universal resurrection, 
And it, what's interesting about those communities, th- those people are called the Russian cosmos and the kind of transhumanist communities around there is there's, there's a lot of crossover between them. And they're kind of talking about different kinds of technologies. They'll have people who are interested in digital uploading. People who are interested in cryogenics, which is the process of, of freezing, free, freezing a person's body so that they can be revived at a later point. J- just because they, they're proposing radical life extension, the, the religious people and the secular people can both cooperate on these sort of similar projects because they have similar ends in mind. And so it's, it's really strange. And it, it would be interesting to think about what transhumanists would look like from other religions besides, say, just Christianity. And there certainly are. There's you know, Buddhist transhumanists, for instance, so it's not my main area of focus at the present. The difference between many religions and this camp of transhumanists, though, is who has control over access to this immortality. Well, I guess what's weird, um, I don't know if you've ever been on the the transhumanist Reddit, but there's always these weird posts from people who are, you know, kind of openly atheists. And they're like, oh, okay, like, we're going to recreate, say, Jesus' miracles through technology, or we're going to be able to do what religion does through technology. And that kind of always raises a red flag for me of like, but why are you trying to do what religions do at all? Right. Like, uh, you know, especially for, you know, if I'm thinking of like the new atheist movement or something like that, where a lot of the arguments revolve around like you want an afterlife, but that's kind of stupid. Right. Right. Like, like that's kind of the way that the arguments go. And, and so to see this other movement of secular people being like, we want that. We definitely do. We just don't think there's a God to do it. So we'll do it sort of thing. Uh, and that's actually why they can cooperate with saving the Christian transhumanists. So there's a guy named Micah Redding here. He operates out of Knoxville, Tennessee. And they can cooperate on technologies because the Christian transhumanists think that, well, maybe God wants to accomplish these things through technology. Right. And that's and so there's this, again, really weird crossover that's possible that wasn't really possible with other secular movements before. And that's, I think, in part because the sort of, you know, I mentioned the new atheists are, are a very critical movement. And so they're interested in sort of debunking lots of things, but they're not putting anything forward as a kind of positive belief, something that they could rally around. Whereas the transhumanists are like, no, we want to be immortal, right? Or like, we want super machine intelligence. We want all these sorts of things. And we want it for these purposes, and because they have those sorts of things, there's room for cooperation or criticism or, you know, all other kinds of things that there just wasn't with secular movements before that. Now, there are Christian transhumanists, transhumanists who want to upload their brains to computers. This seems strange to me. As a Christian, their hope is normally considered to make it to heaven, that perfect state where there is no suffering. So for them, it seems like the sacrifice is even greater not only are they giving up their earthly bodies to become immortal, but they're giving up eternity in heaven to roam around bodiless on the internet. I asked Seth about this. This relates specifically to eschatological differences. So I don't want to get into too big of a discussion of millennialism, but basically from what I've typed to with uh, Micah Redding, he talks a lot about you know, the resurrection of the body and especially of the physical body, right? And maybe that's metaphorical, so you can be resurrected in a a virtual space. I do think, though, that Christian transhumanists um, are very attached to their physical bodies, right? So so they're not thinking as much about being recreated 
in a digital form because that would seem to be an incomplete version of what's promised in the Bible, at least for them. And so I wouldn't say they're on board with that as much as they are on with this sort of the recreation and resurrection of physical bodies. And even the Russian transhumanists, the cosmists, which I mentioned before, who are Christian, are also specifically interested in the resurrection of bodies specifically. And so it's, it's not that, oh, I'm here, I get uploaded into a computer, and then because I'm in a computer, I don't die, and I'm unable to pass on. There would just be a copy, right? You know, the person would still die, right? It, you know, their, their, their body would die. But, but I think that's why the Christian transhumanists are really interested in, well, how do we keep the bodies from not dying? How do we resurrect those? Because that, that seems to be most, most coherent with the way that they read, you know, kind of the resurrection and everything like that. And so th- that's definitely one of those kinds of subtle differences. I think that the kind of secular transhumanists like Ray Kurzweil are most interested in virtual reality because of all the freedom that it might allow but also because it, it offers a kind of heaven that's not possible, right? If you don't sort of buy into that thing, if you don't buy into an extra plane of reality. And yeah, so it's, it is it is quite different. And, and I do think that there, there are some areas of cooperation that aren't really possible. I don't know how many, I don't know how many Christian transhumanists are really on board for that, but it's also a really new movement. So, you know, you know, who's to say? I could definitely see though divergences later on say if you had lots of christian transhumanists and they were to talk for the next hundred years debating these sorts of things about whether they should live in bodies or to live in vr and they probably have this the similar kinds of divisions that we see among the secular transhumanists today we humans want control over our bodies all the time it's called the field of medicine we want control over sickness we want to help people live longer healthier lives no one bats their eyes at that in a way that is us trying to control our own lives and our own evolution. You know, what, what's interesting is that the people who are most critical of evolution, you know, they actually have some decent points sometimes. So it's it's important to, li- to listen to them. And so, so I grew up evangelical, so I'm very familiar with these things, even if that's, that's not the way I really see evolution now. And, you know, one of the things they talk about is there's just kind of random death that happens, right? You know, the kind of, the beauty and the value that exists inside of things is it's all just kind of chaotic and random, you know, what kind of survives from one generation to the next. It's, it's just pragmatic, you know, it's harsh, you know, reality is like that. But if you can take a hold of that process, it would seem that you could say, save people who might otherwise die. So, you know, we're having this kind of COVID crisis right now. And it seems that some people are actually, more predisposed to being especially sick to that virus you know, than others. And so if you could somehow fix that so that the kind of evolutionary landscape in which some people are vulnerable to that and some people are not, you could just move away from that to save more people. I think that's the way that they think about it. So rather than just having this sort of random distribution of kind of strengths and weaknesses that you actively intervene in the genetic makeup of people, this is, of course, another kind of transhumanist concept that we haven't talked about so far of, you know, kind of germline editing, which is, you know, changing someone's genes such that they pass on to their, dis- you know, everyone's descendants from that person. Yeah, it's just it's just something that you actively take control of because there's no inherent morality in the evolutionary process as it is. And so it might be better if it were controlled towards things that we know are good because we have the intelligence to do so. 
And it's because we have this intelligence that we can make those decisions. And also, I think ultimately have to take responsibility for those decisions. I, I do think that there are lots of dangers with that because, you know, we don't know how our strengths might become weaknesses in the future or things that we think would make us stronger might make us weaker in some way. But, you know, that's kind of the the challenge of those kinds of points of view. It's here that the lines between transhumanism and ordinary medicine become blurred. For example, take Aubrey de Grey. He was a guest on this podcast back in season three. De Grey is interested in radical life extension. Some people think that means he's on the quest for immortality. But de Grey doesn't consider himself a transhumanist. He instead likens what he does as similar to, say, finding the cure for cancer or for dementia. It's about having us limit or even eliminate aging so that we can live longer and healthier lives. I actually do kind of buy into Aubrey de Grey's argument that he really is, you know, just a scientist. He's trying to help people. So, so he talks about things mainly at a cellular level. So basically, how is it that we can prevent the accumulation of damage that happens such that s- cells that are bad will reproduce themselves, but healthy cells will not? They'll kind of shut down after a period of time. And in some ways, this is sort of programmed into us a bit, right? Like if we had everyone live as long as possible, it actually wouldn't have been very probably good for, you know, human communities as we were kind of, you know, growing up. I, I think that his research in particular is very much sort of in line with other kinds of health research. So, so for instance, one of the things that you become a lot more vulnerable to is cancer as you age. And that's in part because the cells, they, they have a kind of signaling system with other cells around them in which they're, they're supposed to, they only divide at certain times, but cancer cells kind of just keep dividing, dividing, dividing uh, over and over and again, the, to the point, you know, it's not really helpful for the body or for kind of the system that it's embedded in. Aubrey de Grey is interested in solving that problem too, right? Like that's a, that's a clear health issue. Whereas I think that the the areas where we see that this isn't really difference, it's more pseudoscience, or at least I think it's pseudoscience at this point, it's something like cryogenics. So for instance, I, it doesn't seem to me that just freezing yourself actually saves you in some sense or that you could be revived at any point, you, you know, it, it seems more like a gimmick to me, I suppose. Uh, I, I should confess, though, that I'm not interested in necessarily in radical life extension. I'd be interested in more what Aubrey Gray is doing, right? Like longer, healthier lifespan, but not just preservation for the sake of it. And I think that cryogenics is does seem to be that, right? Where there's this kind of outside hope that something might be figured out about it that we don't know now, but it's not really addressing you know, the core issues where I think that that those resources really could be a lot better spent on something else and sort of accepting death in the, in the present. Actually within the transhumanist community, uh, there's this guy named Max Moore. So he's an extropian. It's this particular brand of transhumanism. And there's a, there's a book, a live, die, come to life. And in it, there's a story told about Max Moore in which, you know, he's, he, he had this partner, and I, forgive me, I can't remember his name, but he chose not to be cryogenically preserved. And it was very controversial within their little circle because they take death very, very seriously, right? They're like, oh, like, you know, you know, once you're dead, that's it. Like, and we're supposed to live forever. And so if you can imagine that, you know, people who think about, oh, like this person that we're really close to who's involved in our community 
chose not to go through with the processes that might lead us all to be in a community forever, right? That's, yeah, that's kind of an infinite loss of a relationship in some sense. And, you know, again, I think there's maybe some acceptance there of the fact that cryogenics may not work, right? But I don't think that's this, I do think that that stuff kind of doesn't really match as well with what the gray is doing in terms of, you know, hard scientific research that would help. That's just kind of the way I see it right now. Maybe they'll figure out things better in the future. What's the difference between medicine and merging machine and man? What's the difference between religions seeking nirvana or reincarnation and transhumanists hoping to live forever roaming as data on the internet? These are the questions that Seth looks to answer. I think transhumanists get a lot of of flack, uh, mainly because there just aren't a lot of them. And, you know, I know transhumanists, you know, I'm friends with three transhumanists. And I do think that this idea of mutual cooperation, you know, around technology for better ends and how to how to make those technologies ethical and whatnot should, should be important to everyone. And, you know, if people have concerns about things that those are all really important to talk about. And, and if anything, I... I'm most interested in how do you get religious communities and transhumanists to cooperate on these kinds of things. Because they actually, in the end, I think, care about some of the same things. And if we could find ways to cooperate on those things in kind of the murkiness of the, of the metaphysical questions, right, about, you know, say the true nature of God or, you know, what a person is, I, I think that that would be good for everyone. And that's that, that that's definitely my biggest hope is, like, how do we find those sorts of points of contact such that, you know, we can talk about things and be like, okay, we agree on this and kind of move forward kind of despite aesthetic differences, I'll say. But for me, at least for now, I think I'd rather just go enjoy the taste of some mint chocolate chip ice cream. This is Elizabeth Fernandez from Spark Dialogue Podcasts. Again, you can find out more about this podcast on sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Please consider becoming a patron of this podcast. It helps with the operational costs and to put things together. Thanks again for listening. Look for our next episode on March 2nd. Background music you heard were clips from Sun Goodbye by Alex, The Sun Smiles on Light Sail 2 by Gordon Ark, Triptych of Snippets by Septahelix, and Depart, the CDK mix by Analog by Nature. All of these songs are licensed under the Creative Commons 3.0 license, and more information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.